we're going to start the book of Daniel tonight. The book of Daniel is controversial. The reason it's controversial is because in the latter chapters, it very accurately predicts a lot of the political intrigue that's going on between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. The Seleucids are Syria and the Ptolemies are Egypt. Actually, let me back up one more. Alexander the Great conquered that whole region. Everybody in that region then speaks Greek, which is, by the way, why the New Testament is written in Greek. When Alexander died, he divided his empire, which went from Greece all the way to India, among his four generals. One of them took Macedonia and so forth. Another one took out west. But the two that are interested are Seleucus, who took what is now Syria in that area, and Ptolemy, who took Egypt, which were all part of Alexander's empire. The Bible is concerned with the Ptolemies and the Seleucids because they are respectively south and north of Israel. And as they fight and do all their political intrigue, Israel is in the middle. So they continually are fighting back and forth through Israel. And so the Bible records all that. Daniel records it from a position of the 6th century B.C. The stuff with the Seleucids and the Ptolemies is much later than that, about the 3rd century B.C. So there's about 300 years between when Daniel was written and the intrigue that goes on between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. The predictions are so accurate as recorded in secular history that there are lots of people who say Daniel was written sometime about the time of the Maccabees. So you will find people who try and late date Daniel and say, no, 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 it wasn't written in the 6th century B.C. as it claims. It was, in fact, written in about the 3rd or the 2nd century B.C. and, they say, about the time of the Maccabees. The problem with that is Yeshua himself quotes Daniel. And Yeshua quotes Daniel as the prophet Daniel says this. And he talks about the things that are going to be in times, and he refers to Daniel as the prophet Daniel says, this is going to happen, kind of thing. So if you are a believer in the Messiah, as I am, I figure his word is fairly authoritative. So I don't put a lot of stock in people who try and late date Daniel. I think it was written just exactly when it says it was written, and Daniel was in fact a prophet, and a prophet that is listening to God, he nailed it. The action is set in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and that would be about 605 B.C., very late 7th century B.C., so most of the action then takes place in the 6th century B.C., in the 500s, and Daniel lives to be a very old man. He lives entirely through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and then he is also alive when the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon. The event there that happens in the book is Belshazzar's feast, and so that's under the Medes and the Persians, and he is still alive and kicking men. There's two Babylonian empires, the Neo-Babylonian Empire and the Old One. The Old Babylonian Empire was under Hammurabi, for example. You ever heard of the Hammurabi 
code of laws and so forth. That's the old Babylonian Empire. That's not the Babylonian Empire we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And what happens there is God decides to chasten Israel by sending them into exile. And in the book of Jeremiah, it says you're going to be in exile for 70 years. And the reason for the exile, the Torah says that every seven years the land will have a Sabbath. You sow and plant and all that stuff for six years, and in the sixth year you get a bumper crop, and then you let that land rest on the seventh, and so forth. And they didn't do that. So what God says is, you didn't do my Sabbaths, and you owe me 70 years worth of Sabbaths. So, since you won't let the land rest, I'm going to take you off of the land. And the land will then rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Now, if you look at the secular history, Babylon starts within a very few years before Nebuchadnezzar sands off Judah. It goes 70 years and then is destroyed by the Medes and Persians. So literally, God says, all right, I need an empire here to chasten my people. Babylon, you're it. Raises up Babylon. They chasten his people. They last 70 years, and then Babylon goes down. First time I realized what had happened, it was like, wow, that's really amazing. He just whistles up this major empire that conquers clear down to Egypt. They conquer the Phoenicians. They conquer all of Syria. Not as large as Alexander or the Romans, but a major empire. And as I say, it just only lasts 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar is a very young king. He succeeds, I want to say, Nabopolassar. That may be incorrect. But he is the heir and a field commander. And so he's off besieging Tyre, I think, in Syria. And he gets word that his father has died. So he real quick picks up and heads back and takes the throne. And then turns around and comes back and conquers Judah. So just a very short time period before the conquest of Judah, Babylon wasn't much of anything. It certainly wasn't an empire. There were two investitures of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. The first one he came down and he put them under tribute, which is to say, all right, I conquered you all fair and square, but I'm not going to destroy you. You're simply going to become a vassal kingdom. And you give me some tribute every now and then. Oh, by the way, I'm going to take some of your sacred objects out of the temple. And furthermore, I am going to take a bunch of your young nobility back with me. And that was a fairly common practice. Still is, probably. When you have a vassal state, what they do is they take young children who are of noble birth back to the home empire, the home capital, and they, they stay there as hostages. And so the idea is if your home empire gets frisky, I've got you as a hostage here. So Daniel was one of those hostages. He was taken back by Nebuchadnezzar on the first trip and was a hostage. Now, Judah rebels, and Nebuchadnezzar goes back a second time, and that's when he destroys the temple, and that's Tishabayav, the ninth of Av. We still mourn on that day. 
the siege started on the 17th of Tammuz and it finished up on the 9th of Av and we call that period the Straits of Tammuz. The second temple was also destroyed on the same day, some 650 years later. Just all sorts of terrible things have happened to the Jewish people on the 9th of Av. But this is sort of the beginning of the 9th of Av saga, if you will. I think I've got background. So now Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Shinar, by the way, is the biblical name for Babylon. Anybody know where the first place is you find that name? Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is built on the plain of Shinar. And then you also have the War of the Kings during Abraham's time. And the king of Shinar is one of the kings that comes and fights with the kings in the Jordan River Valley and scoops up Lot and heads north with him. And Abraham then goes and chases him down and retrieves Lot. That's the first place you see Shinar. But it's another name for the plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz, by the way, means horse's nose. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. We talked about this. These kids are essentially hostages slash the best and brightest of Israel. So they're sort of doing double duty here. They're serving as hostages, but they are also being set up to serve in the royal court because they are bright, competent young Jews. And as we'll see, of course, they're going to rise to the top and get to the point where they're actually running the empire. So what they're doing is they're going through a three-year course under the hand of the head eunuch and the idea is to get them educated and up to speed so that they are qualified to serve in the king's court. By the way, a little bit of trivia, eunuch in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean a castrato. It's simply a title, and depending on what the duties of the eunuch were, his duties were taking care of the king's harem, then they might have him repaired, but otherwise it doesn't necessarily indicate that. We tend in our time to think of eunuch as someone who's been fixed. Not necessarily the case. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. These guys, as I say, they're hostages, but they are being treated well. It is not the case that they're thrown in some kind of a damp, dark cell and left to rot. They are treated as members of the court because they are of noble birth and they are integrated into the court, but it's sort of always understood that their future depends on the behavior of the folks back home. Verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, 
Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all names that have God woven into them. So Daniel means God will judge. Dan, judge, El, God. I don't remember what the other ones, but Azariah is Yah will do something. So they're all names of the Hebrew deity. The chief of the eunuchs doesn't want any of that Hebrew God stuff in his court, so he gives them names of his deities. So Abednego, for example, means abased before Nebo, which is one of their gods. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo will save, I believe, is what that, I don't remember what it is, but something about Nebo, their god Nebo, and he will save or give victory or do something spectacular for for the people because the king has that name. So these are all compounds of names of their gods to get rid of the compounds of names of the Hebrew gods. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. The king has decreed what the diet is going to be. And again, he is treating these people well. I mean, he's feeding them from the same food that he himself eats. So this is not something he is doing out of meanness. However, A, the food is not kosher, and even if the meat involved is from clean animals, so if they were to send from the king's kitchen lamb chops, they would not have been slaughtered correctly, so they would not be kosher. For Daniel to say, I don't want to eat the king's food, puts the eunuch in a really bad position. Because if he says, you don't have to eat the king's food, there's a couple of things that are going to happen. Thing one is the king, if he finds out, is going to say, what do you mean they won't eat my food? Thing two is there is going to fall upon him the suspicion that he is taking this really high quality food that the king is sending down for those servants and selling it on the black market and giving the hostages animal food, vegetables. Years ago, I saw a movie about the British, you know, one of these upstairs, downstairs, that kind of a period movie. And the butler had a thriving business selling candle ends. Because he would have to go around, you know, when the candles get down so far, he'd have to go around and place all the candles. Well, he would wind up with a stub of candle about that big during that process. And he had a thriving business taking those candles down to the village and selling them. Made lots of money on candle ends. So the idea here that one of the servants would say, well, I mean, these Hebrew boys, I mean, we can feed them on vegetables and, and we'll just take the good stuff and we'll take it downtown and we'll peddle it on the black market. That would be the suspicion if it ever showed up that these kids were not getting the food that the king sent down to them. So for these guys to say, I don't want that food, puts the chief eunuch in a really ticklish position. That's why it says in verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. 
So God intervened in this process because the eunuch's natural inclination is, you don't, what? Tell me again what you don't want to eat? You're a hostage here. You'll eat what we tell you to eat. Because if we don't, I'm in trouble. Verse 10. And the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king, which is basically what I just said. If it's found out that I'm not feeding you the good stuff and you get sick, I'm toast. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So in ten days, nothing much bad's going to happen. We can fast for ten days. So what he's saying is, all right, let's do a test and give us the diet that we want. And, and you all have been around long enough that you understand that the only thing that is problematic to eat from God's perspective is meat. Vegetables are free game. They can't do anything to a vegetable except perhaps cook it in bacon that makes it unkosher. So he says, all right, let's, let's try it for 10 days. And if I'm starting to look a bit peaked at the end of that 10 days, then you do what you have to do. But if I look okay, then not only do I get to eat my diet, but you got something to sell on the black market there, chief because I guarantee you he is not going back to the king and explaining what he's done. That's not going to happen. 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as I say, I would not be at all surprised if He didn't make a little money off of the difference between the cost of the vegetables. And when we say vegetables, by the way, we're also including grains and stuff like that. I mean, it's not necessarily just broccoli. Just anything but meat is what it amounts to. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So Daniel now is going to be in an analogous position To whom? Joseph. So what's being set up here is Daniel is going to function in the same way that Joseph functioned. One of the things we're going to see is a contrast between the personality and character of Daniel and Joseph. Because Joseph is of the tribe of Joseph. So he has one temperament. Daniel is of the tribe of Judah. He has a different temperament. And Daniel is going to run up against situations where he's going to have to buck the king. He does it. Joseph never did. And it's a temperament difference. Okay, I'm not suggesting one's better than the other or anything like that. I'm simply saying you have a different temperament between Joseph and Judah. And of course, for those of you who have been through Esther and Mordecai is of the tribe of Benjamin, he has a different temperament yet. And he also rises to the same level in the kingdom where he's in exile, and he handles it differently yet. When Jacob and Moses, each at the end of their lives, prophesy over the 12 tribes, you can see the character of their prophecy 
flow forward into these members of those tribes as to how they handle themselves in exile. So as, as we're going through this, when you see these run-ins that Daniel has with various people, think in terms of, gee, I wonder how Mordecai would have handled that, or gee, I wonder how Joseph would have handled that. And you'll get the idea that I'm trying to portray here. 18. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. Now, understand that these four young men are four in a crowd. They are not the only four that got scooped up from Israel. They are just the four that stand out and raise to the top. The other ones, I'm sure, went on and did other things. Verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So he lives past Nebuchadnezzar. He lives past Belshazzar and is around at the time of King Cyrus. He was a Persian. By the way, this may skip by you and it shouldn't. Verse 20, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. So he has got on his staff men whose job it is to connect with the supernatural. That's why they're hired. And what is said of Daniel is that he is an interpreter of dreams. It's also said of Daniel now that he is better at connecting with the supernatural than are the staff guys that Nebuchadnezzar has. What we're doing, obviously, is setting up his dream here, which is the next vignette. So now we're in chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Chaldeans is a word that is used of the inhabitants of the land of Shinar. It appears also to be some kind of a title. Understand that Babylon was perhaps the world center of astronomy. And we are very used to using a 10-base number system. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 0. So it's a 10-base number system. An equally useful number system is a 12-base number system because 12 is divisible by 2, 3, 4. It's a really good number system. So our division of circles into 360 degrees comes from this time in this area. So a lot of stuff that was discovered in this region of the world at this time in history is still in daily use today. The other thing, historically, is the year at this time was 360 days. And so all of the calendars for that time have a 360-day year, which is where you get 360 degrees and all that kind of stuff. So it's all set up to be neatly divisible by two, three, and four. And of course, God set it up because that was the 
orbit of the Earth was designed to have 360 days. That changed in 701 BC. In 701 BC, every calendar in the world changed simultaneously. And they had to figure out what to do with five and a quarter extra days. So the Romans did 365 days plus a leap day every four years. The Jews do their intercalary month. So every so often, depending on whether you see a bee barley or not, you stick an extra month in there to keep the agricultural calendar synchronized with the actual orbit of the Earth. Anybody know what happened in 701 BC? That was when God was talking to Hezekiah and he backed up the sundial. And in that process, he added five days to the orbit of the Earth. And every calendar in the world changed because they had this extra five days that they had to deal with. All of this had nothing to do with Daniel other than to say that these guys were the world's premier astronomers. And their observations and their rotation system and everything else we still use today. They were that good. Thank you. I have my history wrong. Yes, it is before Daniel. So at this time, it wouldn't have been 360. It would have been 365. This was 605 BC, about 100 years later. So chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Now, this next insight I got from Chuck Missler, so it's not original with me. When is this in Nebuchadnezzar's reign? Year two. So he is a brand new king. So all of these guys on the staff are staff that he has inherited from the previous king. He doesn't have any idea if they're competent. His attitude is, all right, tell me the dream and the interpretation, and then I'll know you're the real deal. But if I tell you the dream, and then you spin some interpretation for me, that's what you guys get paid for, is spinning stories. So I won't have any idea whether or not you know what you're doing. And just to make this interesting, if you can't do it, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to destroy your families. That's what he's saying. Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. In other words, if you can't tell me the dream, you have agreed among yourselves that you are going to blow smoke at me until I finally get tired of the whole thing. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. In other words, O king, this is crazy. 
Crazy talk. Verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Right, so what they're saying is only the gods can answer this. But wait a minute. Your job description is you are people who can connect with the supernatural. And one of the things that happens in all of these kingdoms is they've got guys on the staff whose job it is to connect with the supernatural. We know that there's more to life than just what we can see on the world, so we got specialists who can connect and keep us out of trouble and make sure, you know, we offer the right sacrifices at the right time and we make sure the gods don't get ticked off at us. It's time to go to war, they tell us when to go and all that. That's their job. And so what they're saying is only the gods can tell you and they're also then saying, uh, we don't have a real connection here, boss. Verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Why Daniel and his companions? He is part of that job description. So I want everybody of this job description killed. Well, that includes those guys, because they are in that job description. 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel says, what? What's going on here? Arioch tells him what the problem is. Daniel then, who has access to the king, goes into the king and says, I want you to set a time and I will come back and I will answer your question. This is pure guts. Now, you might say, well, he's got nothing to lose because he's going to be killed if he can't do it. I will suggest he does have something to lose because there's all sorts of ways you can be killed. Arioch here has just been told to kill him. So Arioch, I am sure, is just doing it very efficiently and just knocking heads off or whatever, you know, very quick. If he ticks the king off, and can't actually answer the question, his death can be a whole lot less pleasant. So for him to go in and do that truly requires some courage. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Changes times and seasons. I wonder if that's a reference to Hezekiah. I hadn't picked that up before. Cool. So anyway, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Notice, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That's a marshal. It's a two-line couplet, and it's to be unpacked. He doesn't give wisdom to fools. He gives wisdom to people who are already wise, and he gives knowledge to those who have understanding. So if you aren't prepared, then God doesn't give you wisdom and knowledge. He doesn't sow his pearls before swine. 
So somebody who has prepared himself and is already a wise person, God will then give him more wisdom and give him understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what was asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Full stop. This is Arioch pumping himself up. O king, you gave the order to destroy all these people, but I, your wise and loyal servant, have discerned that there is this man among the exiles who is in fact going to be able to answer your question. That's the flavor of the conversation. He puts a lot of trust in Daniel. Because if Daniel doesn't deliver, he's got a problem. And I will suggest, by the way, this is more of God giving favor. Because remember, God gave favor to him in the case of the food. I will suggest that this is also a case of God giving him favor. One of the things that is important to understand is in a kingdom like this, people who will obey orders are a dime a dozen. Finding somebody who can take the king's order and competently carry them out is not hard to do. There's lots of those people. What's hard to find is someone who will go out and do what is in the king's best interest without orders. That's a really valuable person. So what Arioch is doing is he's setting himself up as such a person. King, you gave me one order, but I know that it's in your best interest that you actually get the interpretation for this dream, and I've actually found it, so I have stayed your order. I'm not going to kill anybody until we hear from this guy Daniel. And by the way, King, I am looking out after your best interest. That's what this conversation implies. And, oh, by the way, that is who he is. He is somebody who's looked after the king's interest in the king's absence. So I'm not suggesting that he hasn't delivered here. He has. I'm just saying it's kind of cute how he does it. So 26. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. In other words, no. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So no human being is going to be able to answer your question, O king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel is exercising radical humility here. He's saying, I am just the messenger here, king. I am not any smarter than anybody else. You, O king, are somebody that God wants to talk to. 
and he is using me as the voice to give you the message. The conversation here, O king, is between you and God. I am just an intermediary. Who does that sound like? Joseph. Doesn't Joseph say the same thing, essentially? What Joseph says to Pharaoh is, God is making this known to you so that you can take action. And the conversation is between you and God. I am just the intermediary. Daniel does the same thing. I don't know whether that's Daniel's temperament or Daniel read the book and knows how you go before a king and reveal dreams. I mean, you know, I'm, no, Daniel's a wise man. I'm, not, I'm obviously joking there. But he does have a pattern to follow because he has read the book of Genesis and he knows how Joseph behaved in the same situation. And he basically does the same thing. All right, obviously we do not have time to get into the actual dream itself. So we'll pick that up next time. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.